Have you ever been excited to see a book that you really liked a lot make its way to the big screen? But having seen the movie, you, you say this, well, the movie was good, but the book was, yeah, yeah, so you've had that experience too. Why is that? Why do we have that feeling? Probably not because the movie wasn't good. The, the movie was probably good, but, but usually because the, the movie can't match our imaginations that went to work while we read the book. The casting, it's a little off. It's not who we imagine that person to be. And as great as CGI is, even it can always replicate on the screen the settings that our minds have imagined. Our imaginations, they are powerful things. God, he's created us to be people who imagine. And, and by God's design, he intends to both capture and fuel our imaginations when we come together for worship in a way that does not happen when you and I are alone or off on our own. And not only does God capture and fuel our imaginations in corporate worship, but he uses this time together to discipline our imaginations, to ensure that you and I are imagining the right things together. And that's why you and I must be devoted to the fellowship of, of corporate worship and to the means of grace so that together we can imagine rightly. And that's what I want us to talk about as we return again this morning to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to take those out, turn to that passage. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or uh, if those options don't suit, it's also printed in your bulletin. But as soon as you've found Acts chapter 2, let's stand together so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, bless now we pray your word to our hearing and to our understanding. Father, we pray that because we are here worshiping together around your word, that you would bring transformation to our lives, that little by little, from one degree to the next, more and more, we would be transformed into the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is our fourth week in our study of the means of grace. Those places where God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, meets us and takes us to Jesus. The means of grace are the word of God, 
the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the prayers of God's people, prayers that usher us into the presence of God where Jesus is seated at his right hand. The early church was devoted to these means of grace. They were committed to coming around these means of grace together in fellowship. And now here we are because God is willing and because he's brought us here again this morning, as promised last week, we can add a third truth about fellowship, about corporate worship to the two at which we looked last week. So truth number one that we saw last week is that corporate worship is the primary place where discipleship happens. Truth number two, corporate worship is the place where we are acted upon by God more than a place where we act. Now this morning, truth number three, worship is the place where we are inspired to imagine rightly. Corporate worship is the place where you and I are inspired to imagine rightly. See, by God's design, the means of grace experienced together are used by the Spirit of God to cause us to imagine. Not in the sense that we make up something that is not, but in the sense that together we imagine life as God intends it to be. We imagine what should be, what can be, what will be. The ability to, to imagine this way, it's, it's God's gift to us so that you and I can actually live in this world and, and live well as we eagerly anticipate the next one. But here's the thing. Our imaginations, mine and, and I'm sure yours as well, they, they must be disciplined by God disciplined by God's story, by his narrative. Now think about Adam and Eve. They had the capacity to imagine. However, their imaginations were not disciplined by God's story for them. Something other, something other than the pristine beauty and the overflowing bounty of the garden that God gave them, a garden in which he came to Walk with them in the cool of the day. Something other than that sparked their imagination. You remember the scene. You've probably imagined it in your mind many times. Satan enters the garden with his counter narrative. And he says to Eve, did God actually say And Eve responds to him with God's words in her own words, eat and live or eat and die. Now, that's God's story. That's God's narrative for their lives. And then Scripture tells us these tragic, life-altering, humanity-falling words that have not ceased to be said or whispered, or insinuated, since they were first uttered. And here they are. But the serpent said. But the serpent said, and here begins the counter-narrative. Now we have to notice that the serpent doesn't actually present anything 
to Adam and Eve. He doesn't show them anything because he has nothing to present to them. He has nothing to show to them. All he does is suggest to them. He suggests that there's something better. And so Adam and Eve, with that suggestion, begin to imagine. The serpent said, if you eat, your eyes will be open. Imagine, our eyes will be open. We'll see things we've never seen before. The serpent suggested, eat and you'll be like God. We'll be like God I wonder what it would be like to be like God. And they begin to imagine Satan's counter narrative. It's always compelling. It lures people, it draws people, it makes them imagine that God's story is not the best story, that God's story is not the powerful story, that God's story is not the productive story, or that it's not the loving story. It doesn't matter. You take your pick. God knows the power of the imagination. He gave it to us. And so from that very first moment of that very first sin, God begins to discipline our imaginations with his truth. So in response to Adam and Eve's sin, God says to them, one is coming. Imagine, one is coming. One is coming who will bruise or crush the head of this one who lies. Imagine. Imagine things being put right again. Imagine things being the way they're supposed to be. Imagine the victory of the God who created you and loves you. Imagine. Ever since the garden, God has been disciplining our errant imaginations. And here's one of my favorite imagination discipling passages. It's from Isaiah chapter 11. God tells us there that one day the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Imagine. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Imagine. The calf and the lion together. And a little child shall lead them. A little child leading a lion. Imagine. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Imagine every parent shudders your child playing with a poisonous snake. Imagine. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. Please imagine that in our culture of destruction and hurt and hate. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Please imagine. We must imagine. These are not the substance-less suggestions of the slithering serpent that Satan is. No. These are the promises of the one and only true and living God. And God is inviting his people Inviting us to imagine his truth. Imagine his narrative. Imagine what can be. Imagine what will be. To imagine the true story. The right narrative lived out in this world. Listen to how Jesus disciplines the imaginations of his disciples. This is from Matthew chapter 13. 
He says to them in verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And then Jesus makes a comparison. See what Jesus, what, what he's doing here? He's describing what the kingdom of God is like so that the disciples can imagine that kingdom of which they are a citizen even now in the midst of a kingdom and a world that definitely is not like the kingdom of God. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 46, the kingdom of heaven is like. Over and over and over again, Jesus is discipling the imaginations of his disciples with his truth, with the real story about who they are and the better kingdom of which they are a part. Now I'm going to tie all this imagining into worshiping together around the means of grace. And I'm going to do it with a real life story. A man whose name I'm not going to mention had given up hope. And he considered abandoning the faith as we have seen several quote-unquote high-profile believers doing in these recent days. And the man was going to give up hope because when he looked around, he saw that people living in the other narrative, the other story, the one without God seemed a lot better off and they seemed a lot happier than he was. He was a believer. And yet the counter-narrative people seemed to be more quote-unquote blessed than he was, even though they didn't believe in God, even though they ridiculed God publicly. Well, the good news is that this man did not abandon his faith. And he, he, here's the good news. He, he didn't walk away. And do you know why? You know what saved him? Do you know what saved this man? You'll never, ever guess it. But I want to tell you, what saved this man was corporate worship. What saved this man was going into the house of God with other believers in worship. He could imagine God again. The, the true story, the real story, and all his bitterness just fell away from him. And he was calm in worship. He was at peace in worship. And then he wrote this song. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You probably recognize the man is Asaph, and the song that he wrote is Psalm 73. And I just attempted to disguise his identity a little, because if you're like me, sometimes a contemporary story is more compelling than a Bible story. They seem more real, but they're not. Asaph was a real man. He had these real feelings as he lived in the world. He observed people living by another narrative, and that narrative beat him up 
pummeled him every day. It seemed so much better than the narrative that he was living. The narrative where he was supposed to have faith in God and have a pure heart before him. But then Asaph says he entered the sanctuary and he worshiped with God's people and he remembered the story he was in and how good it is and how beautiful it is and how satisfying God is and how much better God is than anybody else on earth and how if everyone and everything in this world should fail him, he would still have God and God would be his strength and God would sustain him. And therefore, he wanted to be nearer to God than anyone else. Listen, this is the power of corporate worshiping, of imagining together the way things are supposed to be. And look, Asaph could not accomplish this on his own. In his private meditations, he was failing. He was falling. He wrote, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. That's Asaph's own story. But Asaph of corporate worship was far different. In worship, God acted on him. In worship, God restored him or restoried him, as philosopher and author James Smith puts it. Worship reminded him of the narrative that's right and true. I'm Asaph. You're Asaph. The world is storying you and me every day, wanting you to imagine your life and their story, whether it's the carefully crafted Facebook page of a friend that labors to get the perfect picture that reflects not even the life they really live, but the life that they want you to think they live and imagine that they live for yourself. Or whether it's a movie or a Netflix series or an advertisement or a political group or a social activist group or the 24-7 media, in some way, you and I are being storied. You are. So am I. And some of those stories that we hear are compelling. We hold up those narratives to Scripture. And we begin to think, oh, that's a better story. That's a more powerful story. That's a more effective story. Or maybe and mostly in these days, oh, that's a more loving narrative. That's a more tolerant narrative. Please try to imagine that. Let's try to imagine that. That the thought leaders of today who style themselves the intelligentsia, the politically potent, the powerful narratives that they put forward, imagine that they are more loving than the person and the ways of a perfect God who sent His perfect Son to save people like us when he didn't have to do it, but he did it anyway. Imagine being more accepting. Imagine being more tolerant than wanting people like us in his presence. And not only tolerating our presence, but accepting and welcoming us into his presence. His free gift of grace to us. 
received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Imagine the world ever being more loving. Imagine the world ever being more accepting or tolerant than that. Guess what? You'll never be able to imagine it. Because just like the first recorded lie of Satan to Adam and Eve in the garden, those narratives are nothing but substance-less suggestion. And yet, like Adam and Eve and Asaph were so tempted to accept the counter-narratives until, until, until we enter this place of sanctuary with God's people together. And we remember, we remember the, the true narrative, the right story. Martin Luther said, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Week by week, by week, we come here to have that fire kindled through worship of the God who restores us. So I'm going to do again this week what I did last week. and I'm going to ask you to take out your bulletins or your worship guide. Because I want us to take note of the structure of the story, our story. If you open it up, you see there, as we saw last week, that it's God who calls us to worship. We are here by God's command. He commands us to come here because God intends to work in our lives graciously. See, I think sometimes we imagine God doing this. You know, he's in heaven drumming his fingers, saying, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope that they bring me something good in worship today. But poor old God is always disappointed because what we bring him really isn't that good. That's not what God is doing as we worship together. God calls us to worship because God intends to act on us. And when he acts, we respond. He calls, we worship. Following your worship, God. Together we sing his praises. In song, joining our voices, we remember his glory and his power and the great things he has done. And we raise our voices to sing in the goodness and the glory and the greatness of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we confess what we know to be true about him, who his people throughout the centuries have known him. To be. That's our story. Then look, we acknowledge that God's will is the best will for our lives. And so we listen as the Lord speaks His will to us through His Word. And as He speaks His Word, His will to us through His Word, we are reminded of the fall. We are reminded of sinful imagining. We remember that all humans, without exception, rebel against the glory and the goodness and the will of our great God. They did it. We do it. We rebel against his will. That's our story. But then look, we have hope. In Christ, God has made a way. In Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins. This is our story. When we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our story. 
And then God doesn't leave us to wonder, to question, am I forgiven? Really? Even me? Even that sin? Yeah, yeah, you are. That's our story. God assures us through his word that though it sounds too good to be true, it is true. We're forgiven. That's our story. Is that a good story? And then we remember that our God is a powerful God who is at work through prayer. And so we bring our prayers to him for his people, for his work around the world. And then we listen. Is someone, unfortunately for you, usually me, someone points us to Jesus and extols the excellencies of Christ our Lord. And then we respond with our lives through a song of praise or through a a song of prayer. And then finally, having heard a good word, a blessing, a benediction, all of us are sent back in the world as those on mission for Christ. And when we get out in the world, guess what? Once again, you and I are beaten up. We are pummeled by the narrative of the world. And sometimes it's true of us. We feel like giving up. But prayerfully, it's a little less as we worship more and more together in God's sanctuary. But we're beaten up, and so we return to be restored. We come back here on Sunday mornings to imagine life as God intended it to be, as God makes it possible to be through the finished work of Christ and indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That's our story. Now I'm going to finish with this quick illustration from Scripture about what God-storied imagination can do. David could imagine what Israel could look like freed from the oppression of the Philistines and their star hero, the giant Goliath. And because David could imagine what could be for God's people through the power of God, David acted. He wasn't afraid of the Philistines' taunting narrative or of Goliath's giant size. Instead, he picked up that now famous slingshot, and you know the rest of the story. You know what David did because David could imagine what God could do. Because David couldn't imagine people who had seen the power of God not being able to imagine what God could do. So David imagined what could be, and then he acted in faith. God restores us through worship. He captures our imagination. He fuels our imagination with this grand narrative of which he's made us a part because he's called us to himself in Christ. He restores us so that in the midst of what is for us, 
especially out there, we are inspired to imagine what can be right now because of the mighty power of God. Imagine yourself dying to sin and living for Christ. Can you imagine? Imagine loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Imagine. Imagine doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Imagine. Imagine justice flowing down like a river. Imagine the hungry being fed. Imagine the homeless being sheltered. Imagine what will be someday when Christ returns and we see him face to face. Imagine the earth being filled with the glory of Christ as waters cover the sea. See, we, you and I, we have so much God truth to imagine. We have so much to imagine. And we have the power of God to bring it about. So let's be devoted to this, to fellowship, to corporate worship, so that we can imagine together. And then together, we can act on what we imagine and really make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we simply ask that you would discipline our imaginations with your truth, with your story, with your narrative. If we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.